We're going to be looking at that little sum, uh, 77. So uh, I think Sally's going to got the technology to flick it up on the screen as we go. Uh, but before we do so, let's bow our heads in a prayer. Uh, this little psalm was written by a man called Asaph. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Asaph. We thank you for his honesty as he penned this short psalm. And we pray that in your grace you'd help us to open honest hearts to you. That we, may, uh, we might acknowledge our standing before you and receive healing, forgiveness, comfort and hope. Do more in our hearts now in this short while through these words than ever we would anticipate, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been uh, following in the benefits of our seven churches down in the valley. We've been following a short series uh, in our sermons on prayer. Uh, And actually, today's is our last one. And the subject is, as I mentioned at the beginning, when prayer is hard, when prayer is hard. And so we're going to dip into this little psalm to see what lessons we can draw and possibly learn from the experience of Asaph. But before we turn to Asaph, I want to tell you about somebody else, uh, a man called William Cooper. Uh, It's pronounced Cooper, but it's spelt Cowper. Uh, And you will probably recognise the name. He was a a prolific poet and hymn writer. Uh, He was responsible for such greats as Oh for a Closer Walk with God and Hark My Soul, It Is the Lord and Jesus where uh, thy people meet. He was kind of a contemporary with Wesley. He, was, he actually lived longer than Wesley, but he sort of overlapped most of his life with Wesley. Whether they ever knew each other, I have no idea. But William Cooper had a troubled life. Uh, he was born in 731, uh, 1731, 1731 uh, into a clergy family, and his mother died when he was just six years old. Uh, he was a bright boy, but maybe not surprisingly prone to melancholy. Uh, He went on to study law and was called to the bar at the age of 23. But the following year, his father and his best friend both died and his mood deteriorated as he struggled financially over the next few years. And then the pressure of work and an impossible love match culminated in a profound depression and his first suicide attempt in 1763. He was admitted to an asylum in St Albans where he spent the best part of a year, but where also, in the darkness of his soul, he came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. On leaving the asylum, he was taken under the wing of a good friend, and eventually the friend and his family and William Cooper moved to Olney in Buckinghamshire. You may have heard of Olney because it's there that the rector was John Newton, the reformed slave trader and the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. And William and John Newton became great friends. Uh, William became a lay curate in the church uh, and Newton encouraged him uh, in his poetry writing and his hymn writing. He was a very talented young man. And eventually they decided in 1771 to embark on that great collaboration of hymn writing, which was later published as the Olney Hymns. You've probably heard of it, containing more than 60 pieces by William Cooper. But poor William continued to struggle with his health. His brother died very young in 1770, which took a huge toll on him, on William. And managing the debts that were left from his estate, compounded by the death of two more family members, tipped William back into a deep depression. He struggled on for a year or more with Newton's constant help. But then on New Year's Day, 1773, when out walking in the fields, he had a terrible premonition that madness would return. 
He hurried home and struggled to make a kind of declaration of his faith in poetic form before his mind was enclosed in darkness. And it was in that day that he wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And one of the verses goes like this. It says, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. But within a day or so, psychotic depression developed. He plunged into an abyss of hallucination and the most frightful dreams. He made a second attempt on his life, uh, which was only thwarted by the actions of his housekeeper, who bandaged up his wounds and called Newton. Poor William struggled for many weeks with ongoing suicidal thoughts, panic attacks, and a fear that God had abandoned him. He moved in with Newton, uh, and very slowly his mood lifted, and after about a year in John Newton's care, he was finally able to return to his own home, to his writing, and to his poetry. And actually, in his later years, he became a productive writer, acclaimed as a poet and a scholar in his own right. But over those years together, he and Newton had formed an extraordinary bond of friendship, Newton ministering constantly to his friend William. But William, in turn, stimulating uh, John Newton to more creative and imaginative hymn writing. And Newton said that their joint hymn book was a monument to perpetuate the remembrance of an intimate and endeared friendship, a monument of our mutual regard. Poor William Cooper was a Christian who suffered recurrent bouts of dark mood and psychotic depression. Now, thankfully, most of us will probably not be troubled by that, troubled by that severity of mental illness. And yet many of us will have days when the clouds gather, when our faith seems dry and distant. God seems a million miles away. People sometimes call that sort of experience a dark night of the soul. And sometimes it lasts a day or a week, sometimes for very much longer. And, you know, that's when prayer becomes hard. It's either hard because we just don't seem to have the words to pray or because our prayers seem to land in a kind of void of silence, a place where God no longer seems to hear. And, you know, that is what I think Psalm 77 describes. It describes an episode of a dark night of the soul. So this Asaph, who was he? Well, he was probably one of the leaders of the temple choirs back, way back, you know, a thousand years before Christ. And the psalm is marked up for Jejuthun. Uh, and 1 Chronicles 16 tells us that Jejuthun was a temple musician and a musical director. And the whole thing is about emotional distress. Have we got... Um, brilliant. Yeah, hold on to that screen, Sally. That's exactly what we need. You see verse 2. It says, When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands and my soul refused to be comforted. It's all about emotional distress. So we're going to dig a little deeper and see what we can learn. So I'm going to break it up into three sections. And this is our first section, verses 1 to 5. Uh, and the title for this is Bewilderment. The poor man is bewildered. He says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. This is a man really going through a hard time with emotional distress, low mood. He cried out. There was no comfort. He mused on his situation and his relationship with his God, and he just felt even more faint. And it wasn't through lack of trying. He stretched out untiring hands in prayer. He kept trying to reach God and to make sense of whatever it was that was causing his distress, but to no avail. 
And when you get like that, when your mood dips, there's often physical impact as well. Sleep disturbance is common when we're anxious and depressed, as it was for our psalmist. You see, he says in verse 4, my eyes were kept from closing. And he's too troubled to speak, maybe by his own feverish thoughts. Sometimes when we're anxious, the thoughts just won't shut up. You know, those intrusive thoughts, the negative ideas, always thinking the worst, thoughts that distract us as we struggle to pray. And through the gloom, Asaph reflects wistfully on his own past. He says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago, and if we can just flip to the next screen, verse 6, he said, I remembered my songs in the night. He's remembering those kind of happier times when prayer was fruitful, when his relationship with God was close and exciting, when he would lie awake at night, not with anxiety, but with a song of praise bubbling away in his heart for God. So where have those good times gone? Why is he in such distress? Has God given up? And his distress turns to doubt, verses 6 to 9. He says, I remembered my songs in the night, my heart mused, and my spirit inquired, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has he forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? When we're a bit down, it's tempting to think that God doesn't care anymore. I'm not worthy of his attention. His love has vanished. Maybe even he's angry with me. And we develop a kind of introspection that becomes our predominant thought. We become entirely focused on ourselves. What does God think of me? Why has God rejected me? Am I no longer worthy of his promises? He broken off his relationship with me. Where's his love and his mercy? And actually, if we look at the whole of that bit of psalm that we've looked at so far, it's all about introspection. It's all about me, me, me. The psalmist is saying all the way through, how do I feel? And it's a sort of introspection that's getting him nowhere. It's not actually helping him. Probably it's just making it worse. It's an unhealthy inward looking. But if we read on, we see a change in his thoughts. In all those shifting sands of emotional turmoil, he finds something a little more solid. Exactly. That screen. Uh, It actually begins at verse 10. uh, And it's bedrock. So we've had bewilderment, we've had doubt, and finally, third, third section, we've got bedrock. He says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. What is the remedy for introspection and this kind of doubting? It's to look back outward toward God. I'll remember not what I've done, but I'll remember what God has done. And gradually the whole tone of what Asaph writes changes. It's no longer about him, but it's about God. And what is it that he chooses to recall? I don't know if we've got verse 14. We have verse 14. He says, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples with your mighty hand. Uh, With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And I don't think our screen we do. We've got that little word selah, that little word selah. We don't know quite what that means, but it probably means we now take a pause to reflect. So Asaph takes a pause to reflect on what? On God's redemption, verse 15. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. 
And actually, if we go on a bit further, um, we don't particularly need to look at it on the screen. But if I'll read you verses 18, 19 and 20, it says, Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What event in history is he remembering? The Red Sea, the exodus through the Red Sea. That's what he is remembering. He specifically remembers the exodus. So the thought that holds him as he's struggling in his own distress is simply this. God saves. God chose to save his people. And that is the thought that puts everything else into perspective. That Asaph is saved. When the world seems to be falling apart around him, his distress is eased by the fundamental bedrock thought that he belongs to God. When I was uh, a young medical student, one of my closest friends, uh, who was a, a fairly tough nut from, from Geordieland, um, had a little badge that just said, Jesus saves. That's all it said, just pinned to his lapel, Jesus saves. And actually, that is the bedrock of the gospel. Jesus saves. And Asaph reflects, surely God would never abandon me when he's committed himself to his people of whom I am one through such a mighty act of redemption, the waters of the Red Sea. And I think that's what he's saying, that's the message for us, that you and I, when we're going through dark times, that is also our first place of refuge. So when I have doubts, and be assured that I do, then my thoughts return to the cross of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How could God who loved me so much as to wash away my sin on the cross not also have me in the palm of his hand. Isaiah says our names are engraved on his palms, even when we feel distant from him. St Paul put it a bit differently. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Poor William Cooper struggled with dark times. In 1773, that second suicide attempt, he opened his own veins in a desperate attempt to end his life. And ironically, at the same time, he could hold this sublime prayer in his heart. It's a great favour of Tony's. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Cooper returned to the bedrock of his salvation. Asaph returns to the bedrock of his salvation. You and I need to return to the bedrock of our salvation. We don't know why we go through dark times. Only God knows that. But dark times will probably meet us all at some point. And when you and I are going through a dark night of the soul, when it feels like we may have nothing left in the tank, uh, when our prayers seem to go unanswered, God seems a million miles away. This psalm offers us a remedy. And the remedy is simply this, to turn our thoughts to the gift of salvation that God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For that shows the extent of his love, that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is an event that happened in space and time. It cannot be erased. So when everything else is washed away, our salvation holds. When the storm clouds gather, that is our bedrock. Because our place in God's salvation is secure. We have a place in his heart and in eternity. Even if it doesn't feel like it, God will not forget. That is our bedrock. That is our life belt. That is our strength and comfort that Jesus saves. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that your salvation cannot be undone. It is an event that happened in space and time. It's written into the annals of history. And we thank you for the permanence of our salvation, despite uh, where we may be in our own heads. You love, you care, you hold. Give us grace when we go through dark nights of the soul to turn our eyes upon Jesus. For it's in him's name that we pray. Amen.